0: A uh, dedication of the temple. Solomon built it and now it is uh, being sort of uh, committed to the Lord and uh, now at this point Solomon is speaking to the assembled people who are there for, on this occasion. So uh, 1 Kings 8:14 to 21.
1: When the king faced about and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel was standing, he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, and has fulfilled it with his hand, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel from Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless you shall not build the house, but your son, who shall be born to you, he shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, for I have risen in place of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have set a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them from the land of Egypt. So
0: this is what Solomon is saying to the assembly, praising God, mentioning both at the beginning and at the end of this, in 16 and in 21, how God had brought them from Egypt, and that, of course, is kind of the... You know, highest blessing for the people of Israel uh, up to this point in time that God had done that, <laughs> and uh, He had not picked out a place to live until now. Now Deuteronomy 12 said He was going to choose a place for His name, but it, it awaited this period before He did that, and He chose David. And he explains what David wanted to do. What did David want to do? He wanted to build his house. What was God's will in that? No. No. Why not? Why didn't God let David build the house? Do you know? He
1: was a man
0: of violence. Yeah, he'd, he'd engaged in a lot of wars. And so he was not the one God wanted to build the house. He did lay in a lot of supplies, dedicated a lot of his silver and gold, did a lot of things to prepare for Solomon to build the house, but Solomon was the one that God chose to build the house. And uh, that he has fulfilled. Uh, And Solomon did build the house. Do you notice how much emphasis there is in this section on the house for his name? You know, in verse... uh, 16, the house that my name might be there. Uh, verse 17, house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. 18, house for my name. 19, house for my name. Uh, you know, 20, house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Uh, that is really uh, emphasized. Why, I mean, doesn't that seem like a little strange to say a house for the name of God? Why would he say it that way so much?
1: Maybe part of it was to indicate that it was that he himself was not going to be dwelling in this house, but that it was, you know, for his sake, for his, you know, this is is my forwarding address kind of thing. I think that's it.
0: I think it is the place that he identifies so that the people can turn to it as kind of a reference point to God but but saying that it's a house for his name safeguards the idea that god is not confined to the temple and it's just really consistent there's a ton of those references throughout the bible obviously a great concentration of them here and so you know we're, we're trying to make sure that we don't think god's limited by this uh, house comments and thoughts on this address to the people Well the next uh, the next thing that happens here is that Solomon prays to God and uh, really an interesting prayer this is uh, there's a lot you can say about this prayer and we'll talk about several things as we go. This is almost a prayer about prayer. Uh, so uh, let's start with um, 22 to 30.
2: Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing love and kindness to your servants who walk before you with all your heart, who have kept with your servant my father David that which you have promised him. Indeed, you have spoken with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Now therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep... With your servant David, my father, that which ye have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons take heed to the to their way, to walk before me as you have walked. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray, be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant my father David. But God will indeed dwell on the, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Will hold heaven and and the highest heavens? cannot contain you how much less this house which I have built yet have regard to this prayer of your servant and to the supplication O Lord my God to listen to the the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today that your eyes may be opened toward this house night and day toward the place which to the place of which you have said my name shall be there to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place listen the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when, when they pray toward this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place,
0: hear and forgive. Okay, so Solomon is praying, and how does he see God?
1: Incomparable.
0: Yes. He is unique. He is unlike any other God there has ever been or ever will be. What else is he like? Faithful. Faithful in what sense? He, he
1: keeps his
0: covenants. Yeah, absolutely. He is a God who's really trustworthy. He's quite able to do what he says he's going to do, and he's a man of his word, or shall we say a God of his word. And so what he speaks with his mouth, for example, in verse 24, he fulfills with his hand. <laughs> you know, so he accomplishes the thing he says he'll do. Which is a very helpful thing. Once you see that God answers prayers, that if he commits to something, he'll do it, he'll listen and act, then you ask God to fulfill his promises because you believe he'll do that. You see him as a a promise-keeping God. So if you see a promise God makes, then you're going to ask on the basis of that promise for him to fulfill what he said because you know that's what he does. You know, so that that track record of God is just really helpful in just confirming our faith and in seeing God as a God we can really rely on and depend on. Now, in verse 27, he emphasizes again that God, you know, can't really just dwell on earth. I mean, you can't contain God in even the highest heaven, you know, So much less as this house here on the earth, Um, but he wants this house to be a place, uh, basically a prayer center, a place where God, where, where they can turn and pray to God, you know. He says in verse 29 that your eyes may be opened toward this house night and day, toward the place of which you've said, my name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. Apparently, the the Jews were in the habit of turning toward Jerusalem, toward the temple, and praying toward the temple. You know, um, what do you almost always do if somebody, say, in a room, speaks to you? Turn towards them. Don't you? I mean, it's almost rude not to do that. You know, I mean, depending on the situation. But, but you would sort of expect that if you address somebody, you're going to turn to them and talk to them. And it's a very natural thing. You know, it's uh, we don't think about it. You know, we, do, we don't do it to be polite. It's just a normal thing. If, if you're talking to somebody, you're going to look at them. You know, you're going to turn in that direction. So what do we do when we pray? What do we do when we pray? Bow our heads. Bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm not sure that that's as helpful as what they did. You know, it's almost like we're talking to ourselves. (laughs) Um, You know, I think the idea of them turning toward the temple... And, and talking to God. I think the thing that, that I struggle with a lot of times in praying is that we miss that sense of really talking to God, you know? And it can easily become almost like I'm just sort of thinking. You know, I'm just sort of, you know, mulling something over in my mind. A lot of times we pray silently. Now, I think it was more a custom in the Bible to pray out loud. But if you pray silently and your head's down, You may not even really have a lot of sense that you're talking to God. So I think the fact that they turned toward the temple and prayed toward the temple gave them more of a concrete concept. They were really talking to the Lord, and that's where he put his name. So that's where they could pray and know that he was going to listen to them there. But notice that the emphasis is still on him, as in verse 30, hearing in heaven your dwelling place. So there's no idea that God's dwelling place was confined to the temple. Actually, where he's going to hear in is heaven. You look at the temple, and God will hear up in heaven. Thoughts and comments?
1: This, oh, this always reminds me of the, the custom of Muslims who turn towards Mecca to yes. pray. Yes, yes. I, I'm not I, I'm not entirely sure how to how to think of that and because today we don't turn toward Jerusalem to pray at least as far as I know we're not supposed to
0: <laughs> no I agree with that although I think that is remember Daniel mm-hmm. yeah. even in captivity he was turned toward Jerusalem mm-hmm. I guess toward the West you know from where he was mm-hmm. um, what would be our corresponding thing, perhaps? Where would we turn? Up? Yeah, I think that's probably more the reference we think of in in praying. You know, I mean, maybe maybe not so much up when you're inside a house, but, you know, if you're outside looking up at the stars or whatever. I mean, I think you'd almost envision God as being... You know, up. I mean, what else are we going to see him? Uh, so that might be more appropriate for us and more meaningful sometimes to go outside and just look up and pray. Um, obviously, looking at the stars gives you somewhat of a sense of the awesomeness of God. So there's that. But uh, and, and and maybe, you know, obviously, the New Testament is less physical in some aspects, and maybe God has taught us enough. That wherever we look, we are visualizing, Not I'm not saying physically visualizing, but we're visualizing and understanding and having a, a, a sense that I'm talking to God. You know, I think that would help. Um, I, you know, I struggle a lot of times with keeping my mind on worship, and a lot of times my problem in that is I'm not really communicating. If when you pray, you're thinking about the Lord and talking to Him, it's much easier to keep your mind on your prayer. If when you sing, if your song is to one another, if you're really singing it to your brother, or many songs, at least parts of them, are directed to God, if you really sing them to God. If you sing a song, as opposed to singing to one another or singing to God, it's not as meaningful. You're just singing the song. You know, I know one of the things that, that some good song leaders really emphasize, and this makes a lot of sense, we probably ought to think about this more, is speaking the song more than singing the song. You know, trying to to really say it. You know, we get almost in this chant form. And and, and so we do really stupid things like, you know, we'll come to the the you know, a certain point in the song and we'll take this pause even if there's no comma and no break in the thought. And it would be much better if we were just saying it. Now, you've done a lot of the songwriting schools, do they teach that a lot?
1: Yeah, they, they too do try to, you know, there are a couple of songs where everybody takes a breath in the middle of the word, you <laughs> yeah. know, yeah. Uh, that yeah. kind of thing, you know, and so when they talk about it and you're know, just yeah, they're trying to, don't take a breath that anywhere but there. And, and trying it, to think of the whole
0: thought. It, exactly, because if you take the breath of the muddle of the word, you it, it's probably gonna be harder to think about the word. Mm-hmm. You're more just kind of singing the rhythm or singing whatever, kind of you know, so the more we can really visualize God when we're singing to him or praying to him, I think that's really helpful and and I think it is really interesting that they would physically turn toward the temple since his name was there and they'd pray toward that. other thoughts well um he talks about some specific situations here in, in, in visualizing you know, what would be happening in the future and that the people of God would be praying. Basically, he asks God to hear the future prayers that would be prayed toward the temple. So uh, we'll take a few of these, 31 to 36.
3: If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house. Then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy, because they have sinned against you, if they turn to you again and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your, of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain, Because they have sinned against you, and they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk, and send rain upon your land which you have given your people for an inheritance.
0: Now we are envisioning sometimes when the people have not done well. Maybe they've sinned against their neighbor You know, maybe they're defeated before an enemy because they've sinned against you. Maybe there's no rain because they've sinned against you or whatever. Those are some of the kinds of things that are apt to happen. Some of the situations that people are going to confront. And he's saying, you know, if then they turn to you and confess your name. You know, if they turn to you and and really you know, um, see God's lordship. They confess him as God and they submit to him again and they make supplication to you, you know, uh, and they turn from their sin. You know, if, if they, really, they really turn back to you and they're begging for help, then he's asking God to listen in heaven and forgive their sins and, and bless them again. So this is a prayer by prayer prayer saying God please listen to the people when at a later time they're going to be praying toward this temple in these situations where you've afflicted them because of their sin but they've turned away from it and they're asking you for forgiveness now by the way isn't it interesting that he mentioned several times here the idea of of asking God to forgive their sins that is all over the Old Testament in spite of the myths we have that sins were not forgiven in the Old Testament you know, what we've mistaken is sins were not forgiven on the basis of the blood of bulls and goats and so we, we short-circuit and assume that means God didn't forgive their sins. But it's all over the Old Testament. Forgiveness was given. It was based upon the coming sacrifice of Christ. And this is one of those many passages that, you know, ask God to forgive with the expectation that he will actually do that. Comments and thoughts on these?
1: In the first part, what's it?
0: What does it mean, made to take an oath? Well, I'm assuming you know to perhaps uh, repair the damages or you know correct the whatever he did against his neighbor. So he takes an oath in the house of God that he's going to do the right thing and he's going to pay it back or whatever.
4: Isn't this also basically repeating what God had promised? to do when they were going into the land and
0: if you do this, I'll do this and if you do this very much so, it's very much based upon you know even like passage like Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 with the curses of the covenant you know, how did how did Solomon know what was likely going to happen when they sinned against him well that's what God had said was going to happen so he had a pretty good idea
4: so. so he's he's not really trying to make any new rules or anything like that even he's more or less saying what you have said before now when the people turn to this place to address you is what it appears i agree
0: yeah it, i think you're right i mean i think he's asking god to do what god already promised to do which is an appropriate thing to do that's a lot of of prayers in the bible is you pray based upon what god has said he wants to do in verse
2: 26, he said, Let your word, I pray, be confirmed what you have spoken to your servant, my father David. So right. just confirmation of what he's already said.
1: Exactly.
0: Yeah. So this is like Deuteronomy part 3? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I mean, yeah.
4: In Trigonometry? Or, no? Yeah, there no we go. Yeah. <laughs> Deuteronomy <laughs> is 2, so there's got to be a word for 3. Three times the law. Deuteronomy. Try
0: Deuteronomy. Well, I mean, there is a lot in the Old Testament that goes back to that covenant idea that God made with Israel. I mean, a lot of the prophets speak a lot in the language of the curses of the covenant. Um, And even, you know, things like, uh, why did Elijah pray that it wouldn't rain? Well, isn't that exactly what God said was going to happen if they turned away from him and turned to idols? He knew what to pray that's exactly he was praying again the promises of god he's praying what god said he was going to do uh, you know i've I made this point several times but i mean you know think about praying according to god's will well what's the best way to know it's god's will he says it <laughs> that that gives you a lot of confidence that he'll do it because he said he'd do it that's praying according to his will well you know
2: 90 percent of what we ask god for are things that Maybe not ninety percent, but you know, you know, forgive us of our sin, or you know, save us in heaven. You know, some of those things he's already said he's going to do, but it's just our, it's you know, it's an expression of our faith. You know, when we ask for God to say what He's already you know is going to do. I mean, our prayers would be so much shorter if we didn't, if we only pray for those things that He didn't. He hasn't already specifically said he was going to do. You see what I'm
0: saying? Yes, I do, and I think it's very appropriate that we do that. I mean, I, what we need to worry about are the things we pray that he hasn't said right, he'd right. do. Right. <laughs> yeah, because sometimes those may get us in real trouble. We need to be careful about that. Certainly, pray that God's will be done in those things at least. But, but I think very appropriate to pray for God to act in the way He says He wants to. Well, that's what we want to. That's the bottom line, you know what is that passage is it psalm 37 or something like that where it says commit your way to the lord yeah um uh, there may be others but but psalm 37 5 commit your way to the lord trust all also in him and he will do it well if you commit your way to the lord you know why he'll do it You're, you're you're committed to what he wants you know there's a surefire way to know that God will grant you what you want. Oh, I know what it is. It's more verse 4, some 37, 37 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, yeah, if you're delighting in the Lord, he will absolutely give you the desires of your heart because the desires of your heart will be the will of the Lord. Now, you know, if if we come to where what we want is what God wants, then everything we want, God's going to do. That, that's exactly what we ought to have in our heart. That's the key, is to coming to where, you know, we love God in our heart, and we want exactly what God wants. Does that make sense? All right, uh, 37 to 40.
4: If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all thy people, Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands toward this house, then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart thou knowest. For thou alone dost know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear thee all the days that they live in the land which thou hast given to our fathers.
0: Okay, so he thinks in terms of a variety of things now, famine, pestilence, blight, mildew, locusts, grasshopper, enemy, besieging, or whatever, whatever the prayer is, you know, he's asking God to hear and forgive according to their hearts. That's interesting. Don't hear and forgive just according to them following the proper prayer ritual. But you know their hearts and you know when they are sincere and devoted to you and they love you and they trust you. And so according to their hearts, grant their petitions. You know, wonder what God answered our prayers according to our hearts. Would that uh, that'd be a pretty uh, miserable uh, record of answering? I mean... You know, we often don't think so much about God knowing what's inside of us. We think about saying it right on the outside. But, you know, Solomon clearly understood, you know, God's going to hear, you know, based upon what he knows is in your heart. Thoughts? Doesn't
4: he answer according to our heart?
0: How can he answer questions? Doesn't he? Yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs>
4: well, you asked the question, what if he did?
0: Yes. Well, exactly. And he does. So, when, when we don't have a good heart, we don't get the answers we're looking for.
5: Well, probably good to think about the reverse too, right? Like, you know, those times where you're, you're not really sure how to say it or what to pray exactly, but you know, if you have a, a right heart, then the Lord um, knows that also.
0: Certainly. Yeah, yeah well, the Lord knowing our heart can either be a comforting thing or a menacing thing. depends <laughs> on what our heart's like.
5: You know, uh, 41 to
0: 45.
1: Also concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, when he comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the house which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer. And their supplication and maintain their cause well this is
0: interesting it's kind of uh, unexpected at least by me that uh, there might be a foreigner you know who hears of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm and he comes and prays toward this house you know what you think of a non-Israelite you know learning about God being pressed with the Lord and deciding himself to pray toward his house and and what if he did you know would that be blasphemous you know should he not in you know kind of try to worm his way into praying to the same god the israelites do well what solomon says is here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you i think it's interesting how much in the old testament you know, really showed that the, the way was open to non-Israelites to turn to the Lord, to pray to the Lord, their, to for God to hear their prayers and to direct them. Um, you know, much more than I think the Jews in Jesus' day realized. They seem to be very, uh, you know, against any foreigner or whatever. But... So they- yeah, I thought of that word, but I thought nobody's going to know that word. But I was wrong. Uh, so. But yeah, I mean, that's just really encouraging to see even Solomon envisioning foreigners turning to the Lord and praying and asking God to hear their prayers.
2: But well, Solomon cares. You know, I mean, he's the leader of this you know, Israelites, but yet yeah, he cares
0: enough to even include them. And cares about what?
1: God's reputation.
0: Yes. Cares about (laughs) the Lord enough to be interested in foreigners seeking him and praising him also. You know, not that he wouldn't care about the foreigner. But I think the point is, in verse 43, In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you, as do your people Israel that they may know this house which I build is called by your name. I think the real goal of Solomon in this is thinking that as the foreigners come to acknowledge the greatness of God, God is honored and glorified more. You know, and I think that's one of the things that that I continue to see is different between how we often think and how Bible writers think. You know, our number one concern for evangelizing non-Christians is the welfare of the non-Christian. Now that ought to be a concern because it is the Lord's, but The first concern is God's glorification. When they turn to the Lord, God is honored and God is praised. And I think that would be our first motivation. And secondly, we want them to be saved and be blessed. And then he envisions them going out to battle against an enemy and praying for help, and he's asking God again to hear in heaven and uh, do as they've asked. Thoughts or comments through forty five.
5: I like how he takes it as a given that the foreigners will hear of God's greatness and
0: how (laughs) could they not? As great as God is. Yeah, (coughs) and of course, you know, think about many psalms that talk about declaring God's name among the nations and things like that. There's a lot of exhortations for the Israelites to take the message to the nations. Solomon's great great grandmother was a foreigner. Yeah, you're right. You know, whatever. However, I, I think about how many greats there were there. But yeah, Ruth. Exactly right. Forty-six to fifty-three.
2: <coughs> when they sin against you. For there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with him, and deliver them to an enemy, so that they so that they take them away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. If they take thought in the land where they have been taken captive, and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, We have sinned and have committed iniquity, we have acted wickedly. If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul, in the land of the of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray to you toward the land which you have chosen which excuse me, which you have given to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name, then hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you, and make them objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive that they may have compassion on them for they are your people and your inheritance which you have brought forth from Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and to the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whatever they call whenever they call to you for you have separated them from all the peoples of the earth as your inheritance as you spoke through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers forth from
0: Egypt O Lord God well this goes with Deuteronomy 30 Um, you've got the situation where God exiles them because of their sins and what if in that land they repent and make supplication they acknowledge their sin they return to you verse 48 with all their heart with all their soul and they pray to you that's envisioning quite a transformation while they're in exile when that happens he's asked God to hear their prayer and forgive them and bless them again Um, so you know Solomon thinking of all the various situations that may occur that he knows from the law may occur and asking God to be attentive to the prayer of his people uh, to bless them you know they are God's people after all and he took them out of Egypt, and so he wants God to be very eager to bless and even to restore them if they have become unfaithful and exiled. So, this is, there's a lot of praying about their praying. Thoughts? I
1: think it's interesting in verse 50 that part of it is, part of the what he's asking for is that israelites be made an object of compassion before their captors so it's like let them find favor in the eyes of the the captive of the captors
0: good point point. and
1: i mean it's it's a little different than you might might think but like daniel found you know found favor in the eyes of the, the ruler and, and others did too but kind of interesting that that's the prayer that you know, not necessarily let them go free but
5: you know make you let them annihilate their captors and you
1: know. yeah.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. just
1: let it to let them be compassionate towards them instead of mean
0: mm-hmm good point
4: yeah seems odd too, to be praying this <laughs> you know, is he thinking of himself uh, or is he thinking of the hundreds of years that this uh, cycle involves or
0: uh, Or does he even really know? Right,
4: yeah but certainly
0: adds it in there I mean, you know, he's really kind of imagining all the different situations from Deuteronomy even that could happen and, you know, I mean, what you pray when you're dedicating the temple? I mean if you see it as the place of prayer and you're thinking about future generations then you think about various situations in which they turn to God and pray in this temple you know and asking God to take care of them in those situations He
4: doesn't go gets, go so far as to pray for the rebuilding of it after it's
0: been destroyed uh, <laughs> you know no, almost, it worse. almost that seems can't like
1: happen.
0: <laughs> you know like he's That'd be demoralizing, wouldn't well, it? Well, <laughs> it's
4: almost foregone, though, if the people are carried away, you know. And he prays that as a given, mm-hmm. so that when they are taken away captive, yeah,
0: if they remember
4: mm-hmm. repent. And like you
1: said, it's very much a prayer informed by Deuteronomy.
0: Yes. Yeah, I don't know if it had dawned on him that that would involve the destruction of the temple he just built or not.
3: I mean, would he not have been familiar with how they were treated in Egypt and Exodus and then he would have had maybe some of the writings of the Judges, or during the time of the Judges? Mm-hmm. So he would have been familiar with, you know, Israel's dealings with the various nations, you know, being held captive and being oppressed for 80 years, you know, 60 years, whatever. Mm-hmm. Just
0: That's a good point. So they had experience already with this kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, oppression in a foreign land.
5: Mm
0: -hmm. All right, 54
5: to 61. When Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses his servant. May the Lord our God be with us, as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself, to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, and his statutes, and his ordinances, which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no one else. Let your heart therefore, be wholly devoted to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day.
0: So he turns to the people again and addresses them, praising God that has kept all the promises that he's made, And uh, saying, may God um, be with us, and may he incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments. You know, um, is that God's responsibility?
3: is interesting. It's like he's asking God to persuade us to like him more, sort of.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, to incline our hearts to himself, to walk in all his ways, why would you pray that God do that?
1: You're uncertain of your own ability to do that? Perhaps.
0: does it mean that God's the one responsible for us having a good heart and doing what he says? And if so, is it God's fault if we don't?
2: Would not his God being God and acting according to what he's already said he would do for would wouldn't that incline our hearts to him? And maybe in the same way, it could harden some hearts as well, like a pharaoh. But uh, God, being God, would you know certainly
0: soften our hearts and incline us to do what He says. Or what we need to do. This is definitely biblical language. It's a biblical kind of thing to ask. Though, so look at verse 61. Let your heart therefore be wholly devoted to the Lord your God to walk in his stature and to keep his commandments as the, at this day. The thing that we struggle with is an either or. Well, is it God that makes us faithful to him or is it us? And we always want to make it, it's got to be all one or all the other. You know, it's like, wh- what if I said, who provides your daily bread? Well, you could say God, couldn't you? Isn't that true? You could say you, couldn't you? Isn't that true? it's both. It's not, well, it's got to either be God or be you. You know, God works in us. God works on our heart. God strengthens us to obey him. But we seek him and we soften our heart and we do what he says. It's not all God or all us. It's the combination of those two. So Solomon doesn't seem to see any problem with you know requesting that god incline our hearts to walk in his ways and at the same time saying let your heart be wholly devoted to the lord to walk in his statutes that those are complementary things just like i don't think we have a problem with praying to god for daily bread and going out to work you know we see those things as being mutual not as being you know too exclusive sort of paths but we struggle with that more when it comes to these passages about you know Who's who's doing the work in our lives, in our hearts? Is it us or God? And it should be, yes, it's us and God. Does that make some sense?
1: Looking at verse 57 and 58 together, it's like Solomon is saying, don't leave us, be near us, be with us the way you are with our fathers let us know that you're there your presence then that may incline that, so that that will you know, help us keep God in front of us and we'll be more inclined to have our hearts inclined.
0: yes look at that in 57 and 59 this is a prayer that God be with us and not leave us or forsake us. But look at 59, and may these words of mine with which I have made supplication before the Lord be near to the Lord our God, and so forth. You know, so God being near us and what we say being near to God. You've got both of those, uh, you know, in that. And, and so there's, there's that, and then there's our responsibility to keep near to God in 61. So it's, it's a complementary thing. What do you think about Solomon here? Is he a spiritual man? If you just had this chapter and you didn't know the rest of the story about Solomon, then what would you say about it?
3: He's an awesome leader.
0: Wow! This is amazing! He's I mean, very spiritual. You know, it's very good. And again, look at verse 60. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there's no one else. He, again, the, the idea of wanting Israel to be the way of salvation to the world, you know, uh, so I mean, he's, he's seeing the whole picture, you know, he's, he's oriented toward the mission of, of bringing the world to the Lord, you know, he's very spiritually focused on their heart and their obedience and their, you know, prayers and God answering and hearing and, you know, sees the incomparable God, um, how could somebody who can pray like this and talk like this ever fall away from God? It's kind of scary, isn't it? You know, it's so important that we maintain ourselves with this spirit. I don't believe Solomon would have fallen away from God if he'd have maintained the heart and attitude he had here. Thoughts and comments through 61.
4: Yeah, that same phrase in 61 um, let your heart be wholly true to the Lord our God in 11.4 it said that Solomon's heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God
0: yes good so point so he didn't follow the advice he was giving them think about I mean do you see that that's just a very good point point. 58 and then 11.4 I mean it's the very same language you know that Solomon didn't listen, didn't follow what he said. Think about 1 Corinthians 9:27, which we know well. You know, but I'm but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I mean, Paul sees the possibility that he may be preaching to others and telling them things to do that he turns around and doesn't fulfill properly. Don't think that because we can tell everybody else the right thing to do, that uh, that automatically guarantees that we're going to do it. So Solomon's kind of, that's the kind of a frightening example. I think a lot of people like Solomon in the Bible are frightening because, you know, man. I mean, you don't get better than Solomon here, and yet look what happened to him. Other thoughts? Bites 62-66
4: Now the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. And Solomon offered for the sacrifice of peace offerings which he offered to the Lord 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the sons of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. On the same day the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the lord because there he offered the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat of the peace offerings for the bronze altar was that was before the lord was too small to hold the burnt offerings and the grain offerings and the fat of the peace offerings so solomon observed the feast at that time and all israel with him a great assembly from the entrance of hamath to the brook of egypt before the lord our god for seven days and seven more days even fourteen days on the eighth day, he sent the people away, and they blessed the king. And they went to their tents, joyful and glad of heart, for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, his servant, and to Israel, his people.
0: Well, that uh, is quite a sacrifice. Can you imagine? I mean, what could be an adequate offer for a great God like this? The dedication of the temple, but 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. And that, that gave them a real problem. What was the problem? Space. Yeah. The
1: altar wasn't big enough. Well,
0: good land. Can you imagine with one altar how long would it have taken to, uh, you know...
4: If they did this all in 24 hours, they'd have to slaughter 2.7
3: sheep per second.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and And, and, and sure sacrifice him. <laughs> burn them on the altar. Now, I don't think it was all 24 hours. Uh, maybe two weeks. <laughs> But still, wow! And uh, so, he, he consecrated the whole middle of the courtyard <laughs> as an altar. So I guess I don't know exactly how that worked, but you know they they apparently used the whole space for sacrificing animals. <laughs> That's just amazing, and extended the feast out another seven days. And you know this was uh, this was a monumental you know, festival to the Lord. T- 10,000 animals a
1: day, if it's over
0: two weeks? Yeah, still, that's a good number.
1: That's, did you see the people away in the middle? That's a good question,
0: too. Uh, it looks like it.
1: I
5: thought it was after the
0: second. I think days. that's probably right. Yeah, if you think about 10-hour days, mm-hmm. then that would be like 1,000 animals an hour.
1: So you would have, have to have several several sacrificing stations
0: yeah yeah. This takes some heavy duty sacrificing uh, it's, and, just, it's remarkable
1: and with, with part of the sacrifices didn't the person sacrificing eat part of it with yeah, the priest the peace
0: offerings uh-huh.
1: so the priests were full
0: well but the people also this is a big festival and they're all eating together so this is it's Natural.
1: not exactly like a big barbecue. But well it's kind of. I mean in the sense that this is feeding how many people?
0: Yeah. That's, that's
1: it. Bunches. All Israel tucker, coming tucker. together.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He assembled all, the elders, all the heads of the tribes, the leaders, and so forth. And then let's see. You know,
1: have a great
0: from All the offices. assembly of Israel in verse fourteen. So, I mean, I think thinking of a barbecue helps in the idea of understanding that part of this meat is being cooked to eat in the peace offering, for not just for the priest but for the worshiper also. And that's that's what I mean. That's kind of how they're eating during this feast, is what I'm assuming. But that's that's spectacular.
3: So are we concluding that they're not just using the bronze altar, but they're sacrificing on multiple places in the
0: court? Yes. Really? Yes. That's what I take from 64, when they consecrated the middle of the court, because the bronze altar was too small.
3: I was just wondering how lawful that would be. Like, is that okay to just, you know, I'm going to use this rock instead of the altar?
0: I take that it was. I mean, I don't see any indication that there's a thought of condemnation here. Uh, I know that's a bit challenging sometimes, you know, how can you do that? But the point of this is not a desecration, but of just an extravagance in serving God. You know, I mean, they extended the feast another seven days. Did they have the right to do that? I think so. I think to celebrate more and to worship more, offer more. This is not doing something, you know. In a, you know, it's a wrong kind of a thing. It's just, uh, you know, we were being even more extravagant, and therefore, you know, we'll just use the whole courtyard. But the fact that he, uh, fact that he consecrated it, I think is probably an indication that he's, you know, somehow sanctified it in some sort of ritual procedure to make it clean and sacred to often. What feast was it? Tabernacles, right? Does it say? <laughs> it was seventh month. Seventh month, yeah, I ate two. It was tabernacles. The annual feast? Yeah, yeah, Tabernacles was pretty much their big feast.
2: Well, then, when they all went back to their tents, yeah. joyful there, wouldn't that indicate? The feast I would of the say so. Time
0: okay yeah yeah good point they went to the tents yeah good point
1: there's a note here it says the, de- the dedication of the temple lasted seven days and the feast of booths another seven days uh,
0: okay. which may or
1: may not be
0: <laughs> I don't know about that but maybe
1: but the, it, it, in verse 65 it talks about this great assembly being from the entrance of Hama to the brook of Egypt which is from way up north to way down south, like the entire country.
0: But I, I think that's where they've come from.
1: Okay. Yeah, because it it strikes me as kind of weird that you would be able to travel more than 100 miles with your little burnt offering, well, peace offering sacrifice part to go hang out in the tent and eat it all in one day. Yeah. On foot.
0: pretty impressive other thoughts thinking of something I've, I've, I've really been enlightening I'm sitting first chronicles and uh, that's enlightening uh, you've got the same thing in 135 1 chronicles in terms of the assembling so David assembled all Israel together from the Shihor of Egypt even to the entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And so that's from the entrance of Hamath, the brook of Egypt. And most, uh, the authorities I read said that uh, the Shihor was the brook of Egypt. Not, probably not the Nile, probably the Wadi El Arish, which was the division between Egypt and Egypt. For whatever that's worth when you when you start studying something new then you start seeing all these connections especially because there's so many between between kings and chronicles so. all right well we can uh, stop here i won't be here next week and then i will be for two and then i won't be for two i think that's the way this goes